The MHI Industry Leadership Podcast brings together the solutions, providers, and thought leaders of the materials handling industry to talk about trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices to move the industry forward. Christian Dow is the Executive Vice President of Membership and Industry Leadership at MHI. In each episode, Christian will be talking to the leaders and members of MHI's industry groups. Let's join him now. Welcome to the MHI Industry Leadership Podcast. In today's episode, we have two special guests from the MHI Solutions community. Phil Hawbaker, Vice President of Business Development at JGA, and Stan McLean, Vice President of System Sales at Ascent Warehouse Logistics. The topic of today's discussion is making the business case for WMS to the C-suite. With the growing need for agility and resilience in the supply chain, warehouse management systems have become an essential tool for businesses to optimize their operations and stay ahead of the competition. But how do you convince the C-suite to invest in a WMS and demonstrate the ROI? Phil and Stan will share their insights on the benefits of implementing a WMS, including increased efficiency, accuracy, and visibility, and how these tools can support overall business initiatives. Welcome, Phil. Welcome, Stan. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Stan, can you tell us a little bit more about you and your organization? Yeah, I work for Ascent Warehouse Logistics, and we are a developer and implementer of warehouse management, warehouse execution, warehouse control systems. Very, very strong roots in the automation space, and actually our affiliate company, Sencorp White, is in the uh, ASRS, BLM, carousel uh, industry. So we started out uh, from a WES, WCS standpoint, uh, kind of before those terms were even around. And then we evolved in the mid to late 90s into full WMS with those capabilities just naturally in our tech stacks. Excellent. And Phil, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your organization? Sure. So I'm a part of uh, Jay Goldman and Associates, JGA. Um, and we're focused rather than uh, like Stan on a particular product. Uh, we focus on the implementation of said products. So we focus in the area of supply chain technologies, specifically the WMSs, warehouse management systems, labor management systems, uh, a lot of your S's um, in the industry. Um, and our, our roots, you know, we're located all over the country, um, but we're, we're a group of individuals who have experience in various areas um, a lot of us kind of started on the product side with, you know, the Manhattan Associates of the world or the Blue Yonders of the world, and have since transitioned to really partnering with clients on, um, you know, navigating the complexities of implementing a technology um, and kind of incorporating it with, you know, the execution systems and, and all of these new systems and technologies that are kind of Coming to the forefront, I'd say within the past, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years, things seem, seem to really be uh, ramping up. Excellent. Well, welcome, both of you. It seems like we definitely have the right people on the call today. Um, so, Stan, what are let's jump right into the topic and, and discuss the first question, which is what are the CEO's most common business priorities or conditions 
that make a warehouse management, warehouse execution, or warehouse control system a priority? Yeah, the the CEO uh, level is a little bit different than other uh, C-level people in the basically the corporate um, control of the company. Their their priority is a little bit different, so they tend to be more broad-ranging. From my experience, they tend to be centered around business growth, business scale, um, you know, strategy associated with that, sometimes inability to keep up with the growth they already have in front of them, which we saw a number of examples of that when COVID hit, particularly with e-commerce clients, and on occasion, uh, business survival. And sometimes the, you know, business growth, business scale might mean their strategy is to add product lines, acquire other businesses, and they know what they have internally and how they operate internally just really is not up to snuff to get them where they want to go, or they're struggling to get there already with the growth that they have. We see a lot of that as well. I would say um, in, in my experience, some of the additional things that uh, kind of going off of what Stan said were um, utilizing um, perhaps underutilized resources as well. So in, in a lot of us, we're talking retail uh, is yep. a big facet of, of what we're dealing with. Um, and kind of the, the overarching problem I hear over and over again is you swell with peak and then you have <laughs> resources that are underutilized or completely vacant, you know, for uh, 50 weeks out of the year. So how, how do we kind of flatten, flatten things out? Um, and definitely at the CIO, C, uh, CTO, the C-level, um, there's a lot of focus on the financial side of kind of uh, better optimizing the usage of their resources. Yeah, let's complete that uh, discussion with the rest of the uh, the C-suite, the COO, CFO, CSO, Chief Sales Officer, Chief Marketing Officer. What, how do the other priorities or conditions uh, for the other members of the C-suite, how are they affected by uh, an implementation of a WMS? Stan? Yeah, sometimes, well, good call out by Phil, actually, in the retail sector, particularly e-com and omni-channel is, you know, we we see those pains most significantly uh, during the peak season. So that that tends to get, you know, the attention of everybody in the C-suite, but for sure the CEO. But, at, you know, you can have uh, a COO, CFO, or CIO can be driven more towards a WMS far before you hit any kind of an extreme. You know, CFO, sometimes it might just be their inventory accuracy is so horribly off and they can't get their arms around it with whatever they're using. So, you know, a CFO could be involved and engaged from that standpoint. Uh, a lot of our clients and prospective clients today are dealing with what we refer to as the Amazon effect, you know, exacerbated by COVID-19. So it's no longer a, a choice anymore if you can uh, find the bodies to throw at it because you can't find them. And so that's the kind of thing that might get the attention of a CEO long before, you know, a CEO has attention on, hey, we need to grow and scale the business. They're simply just struggling to survive on a daily basis. And of course, you know, a very, very uh, focal pain point for them in in e-commerce or omni-channel in the fourth quarter. They're going to see the extreme of that. And to Phil's point, kind of, you know, how do we level that out? throughout the year and at the same time how do we how do we survive our peak season bill yeah no i mean absolutely 100 percent agree uh this is not a a unique story by any means and uh 
uh, yeah, definitely something that echoes and resonates probably with, you could probably think of 20 people off the top of your head who've, who've had these same discussions and pain points uh, within their own organization. So um, yep. 100% of stand there. And, and a lot of times, you know, sometimes from the, the CIO level early on, uh, you know, the, their thoughts and processes are centered around the likelihood that whatever they're, they're bolt on ERP WMS module is regardless of what the ERP is, will kind of get them where they need to go. And at some point in the business growth cycle, that uh, often proves to not be adequate for what they want to accomplish as a business. So that, that you can sometimes see conflicting interests from the CIO level between, you know, the other C-suite execs based on that. IT priorities over operational business growth, profitability priority priorities, really. Yeah, I can see diving into that a little bit more in a second. But I think first, before we go there, I want to dive into the role that integrators play in the implementation of a solution such as an WMS. Phil? Yeah, so, I, I mean, really, it's, um, you know, it, we would come in uh, and work with a client um, at pretty much any point that uh, you, Stan, and I have been discussing over the past few minutes, where it's um, kind of marrying up the, the, the corporate strategies, if you will, um, and helping them execute on those. So um, depending on kind of where the needs are and who's really driving this initiative, sometimes, like Stan was saying, it could be, uh, it could be on the tech side. It could be on the business side. It could be on the operations side. Um, that can be, um, you know, first and foremost, drive what what the objectives are and kind of what the strategy is. So as an integrator, we can help work with, okay, are we talking long-term strategy? Are we talking a stopgap just so we can get through peak this year, right? Those, the, that versus, say, a five to 10-year uh, tech roadmap could have wildly different solutions. And then as you get down the rabbit hole and you start going through the selection process, getting with a particular product or products, where does this fit into our landscape, our technology landscape, our operational landscape? Where does it fit in with our IT strategy? All sorts of things. Once we get that, then then we actually set it up and, and start getting into uh, the weeds of the technology of, okay, um, actually implementing the business use cases, uh, putting boots on ground and uh, helping, helping the customer, in our case, you know, operations or whomever, ultimately use the solution, use the software. And then uh, at the end of the day, as we always say, uh, we are trying to work ourselves out of a job. So ultimately, our goal is to hand the torch off to the end consumer, um, the end customer, so that they can use the product, leverage it the way it needs to be leveraged. So from an end to end, that's kind of all the different areas that an integrator can work. Obviously, uh, the needs are, are client specific. It may be you know, one particular facet of it, but that's kind of where, where an integrator fits in. Stan? 
Yeah, that's some great call outs by Phil there. One of them I'll, I'll jump on because it was part and parcel of one of my examples, which is, um, you know, kind of the building blocks or the phased implementations. But one of the examples of the C-suite that I gave was based very much on that for e-commerce client where, well, we want to get all this done, but we know we can't get it all done this year. So we literally ended up on a multi-year, you know, plan and program to get them where they needed to be focusing initially on just throughput and then coming back, circling back to efficiency because they simply couldn't get their peak season orders out the door. They couldn't find the manpower to do it. Um, the other one is the role that, you know, uh, organization like Phil's really provides is that oftentimes we have clients and we, we have consultant integrator partners um, we do the full implementation for our solution, but oftentimes you have a client and they're sitting there and they realize they need to do this, but they're going, oh my gosh, how do we, how do we resource it internally? We know you guys can resource your part, but how do we resource it internally and how do we have a multi-month project and a dedicated attention on resources where we're already resource constrained and then let alone what that means during their peak season. So that's kind of an invaluable uh, thing that a company like Phil's group brings to the table is to, you know, say, Hey, we can assist you with all really the client side portion of the implementation, which is, it can be substantial. So. Yeah, very much so. Well, and, and you mentioned something that kind of triggered something in the back of my head is we also find that it's, it, it's not necessarily technology or solution specific, but there are some um, some solutions providers out there where they really don't want to be the integrator. They just want to be a product company, and that's true. Yeah, and and they effectively only have their only source of kind of implementing is having external third party implementers. All they want to do is they want to have uh, product developers, coders in-house, and um, have a SaaS-based model. Oh. Yeah, that's not our model, but you're uh, spot on that many WMS um, providers, that is their, their exact model. And for those clients, though, that, you know, they can't find an organization to assist on the client side implementation, that that can be a struggle. And particularly if the the WMS vendor is, is, doesn't even want to implement on their side. So we, we see that a lot. It's a strategic advantage for us, but um, it's still relevant that many times a client, even if the vendor is doing their own implementation and integration piece, the, the client side is they can be weak on resources. And you see that across any size of company, really. And it's not just lack of resources, but sometimes lack of experience and skill set in implementing systems like that. So, Excellent. So what are some of the peripheral services of implementing a solution and how do those factor into the ROI assessments or kind of the measuring the ROI of a WMS implementation? Phil? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Stan kind of uh, touched on it a little bit earlier, too, but um, he, he had mentioned that the cost of implementing um, can oftentimes be very substantial. And in certain products and implementations, especially extremely complex landscapes, uh, 
I would argue that the implementation costs themselves can far exceed the product. I mean, the, the raw product cost. Oh yeah. Um, yep. So it's, it's definitely not, uh, not a negligible, um, in, ter- in terms of, you know, raw dollars, as well as, you know, again, like you and Stan were talking about earlier, um, there's, there's an onboarding period. There's, there's general knowledge that, you know, you can't just bring a, a, a body on board and expect them to be able to implement um, with the same skill set as somebody who's been working on a particular product or even in the industry for 10, 15 plus years. So to me, that's where all of this fits in is, um, you know, there's the raw cost. And um, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about the overall total cost of ownership of the product itself once it is implemented. Um, But what is your timeline? What what sorts of um, in-house capabilities do you have? What sorts of, um, you know, uh, capacity to learn and to ultimately take ownership of this, uh, are you willing to invest in? And so all of that is where, um, again, a third-party integrator or in certain cases, um, the product company itself, if they have their own implementation team, can kind of help help with that swell, if you will, um, for, the, for the implementation of the products themselves. So- so Phil, on uh, kind of on that direction, and you're talking about the kind of the internal capacity to take over, does it a lot of times require an organization to hire an internal champion that's already has it, had experience in in the WMS? I mean, that certainly becomes a really valuable asset if you can find somebody that has prior experience with a with a solution, right? For sure, and uh, you know those. Folks with those particular skill sets in various, I mean, you could you could go through and, and search LinkedIn or any number of uh, uh, job board sites and you will see, you know, there are architects needed in various product suites, um, always in full demand. I think what we're running into now, though, is with the, you know, the, the heightened focus and awareness on supply chain investment, particularly over the past, call it three three plus years to really accelerate timelines, um, it now kind of becomes a question of, okay, now who, who can we uh, appoint within our organization to kind of grow into these roles? And that's, that's something that, um, you know, certain organizations have focused on that from the beginning, keeping their own internal resources abreast of uh, the changing landscape, but others have always focused on kind of bringing in new talent and and nowadays it's um it's kind of a bit of a tug of war on on uh which way wins out a lot of it just comes down to sheer availability which right now it's i'll I'll just say it's a lot more difficult to find available resources um yeah then the investment becomes really training right getting somebody who's trained up on on that uh on that solution internally Exactly. And, and I know Stan will agree 100 percent, but uh, you can you can invest and get somebody technically aware uh, of the product and the solution within a period of time. But 
it's it's years one through 15 or one through 20 that are really where the rubber meets the road and the values made. So there's no yeah. shortcut for that either. Yeah, that's spot on. And actually, you know, even in the sales process for us and when we kick off a project is we basically challenge and push our clients to anoint or appoint or place that person because you need a focal point. And the sooner you involve, uh, you know, and sometimes based on the size of the project, it could be more than one person, but you just, you have to reinvest some of the savings you're going to get in, you know, labor and efficiency and growth and scale back into a person to take you to the next level internally, not just entirely lean on the vendor, but it's a learning process for the client as well. And, and you need people largely dedicated to that, certainly during the project phase, for sure. Right, right. So Stan, what is normally required to get approval for a warehouse management management execution or control system uh, by the CEO, CEO, or CFO? First of all, where does, it, does that approval normally come from? A, if you have a full suite uh, at the C-level, does it usually come from one direction or the other? And then what normally do you need to get, a, get approval from, or how do you get approval for, for these solutions? Well, it can vary, you know, in the instances that I gave at the C level, if it's kind of the business is at risk, that, that goes very fast. And, uh, you know, they may not need to see a formal ROI. The issues might be apparent enough, such as not being able to satisfy order demand timely during peak season. <clears throat> and if you can provide relevant examples of where you've helped other companies achieve that, that decision process goes rather quickly and doesn't always necessarily need to go through you know, capital planning and things of that nature. Uh, sometimes some clients have done their own return on investment analysis. Sometimes they'll engage a third party, a consultant or integrator to assess it. Um, and we also assist them in that. That's a for hire consulting piece that we do. We don't just do it. We're not consultants by nature, but we will assist a client to create their own ROI and walk them through everything they need to assess and produce the report. We're doing one of those right now. It just depends internally what their their structure is, but you usually will see a more formal justification if the C-suite exec leading it is a COO or CFO. If it is elevated to, you know, where we started this conversation that the CEOs kind of go and we need to fix this problem, <laughs> then, <laughs> then, then normal approval processes uh, get sidelined. So, and they act quickly. It's interesting, you know, your comments about whether or not you're going to get things done or not, uh, you know, of, of being able to meet the demand. And uh, we had at the Solutions Community Spring Meeting, a uh, panelist from Kroger who basically said that exact thing about automating that that it's sometimes the ROI the cost justification is out the window because it's the cost of you know whether or not you're going to get something done or not get get something done in the in the customers that you will lose because of it yeah. um you know so that 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 point is well taken it's actually become kind of a theme on on some of the solutions community podcasts that we've done so far is you know that 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 is becoming more of a thing where it's uh it the, the ROI is in the business case, but it's no longer the primary thing in the business case. 
Yeah, that's a great call out. That was kind of in my example of, you know, can't meet peak season demand. Uh, and I didn't say it uh, as well as you just stated it there. But the subtext of that is if you can't, the consequence is lost customer base. So now that's a, that's spot on to what we're seeing out there. Phil, any additional thoughts to that topic? Yeah, no, I mean, they, 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 echo exactly everything that uh, that we're seeing in all of our clients as well, uh, which is, you know, um, it, it, like we were talking about earlier, just getting, um, you know, being able to utilize all of the resources. And if you can't meet demand, if you can't satisfy customers, um, you've effectively got a warehouse or inventory or uh, robots or any sort of um, usually expensive investment you've made that is not uh, ultimately helping to drive either profit or revenue growth. So, yeah, yeah. And that's really changed. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years and, you know, used, <laughs> used to be operations, warehousing, distribution, you know, they were, they were low on the priority list, uh, you know, for capital spending. And that's in the last Five to 10 years, that's dramatically changed. Obviously, a lot of that just from the growth in e-commerce and some of the other things we've commented on. But um, certainly at the C-suite level, a lot more attention on investing in um, technology and automation and operations that I didn't see the first 20 years of my career. So, Phil, can you give us some recommendation or best practices on opportunities or you know, or, or in the implementation that can lead to a improved ROI, you know, if you're going to throw out the ROI completely, yeah. you know, you're probably still going to want to try to uh, improve as you go through the process. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and um, the I doesn't always have to uh, pertain to direct uh, dollars and cents. It can also, like we've been touching on um, a little bit, uh, a little bit more previously, you know, there's kind of non-tangible um, ways that you can derive value. Some of them are, you know, what is this, uh, how does this product, how can we implement this in such a way that we can get it done on time, right? If, if we're not going to be able to uh, implement in such a way that we can get this uh, implemented before peak, well, there's uh, there's an effect of sure, maybe raw dollars uh, in lost sales, but there's also um, just the sheer, you know, um, publicity hit perhaps of not being able to meet um, meet peak demand. But some ways we do this is how can how can we deliver on time? Um, you know, effectively, how do we deliver on time? How do we deliver exactly what is needed, um, or more closely mirrors what's needed? Um, and, you know, this kind of touches on, uh, that, that experience of years one through 15 or one through 20 of, yes, you can train somebody, you can onboard, uh, appoint or anoint somebody within your organization. Um, but I really see a lot more value in the experience, uh, bringing on people who have done this, not just, you know, this isn't their. Uh, first time doing this, this is their fifth, 10th, 20th time doing it or, or more in many cases. Um, 
And that really helps avoid a lot of the same hiccups and roadblocks that you see on every project, you know, making sure that we're testing things, making sure that uh, if we've got, you know, extensive MHE that we're interacting with in a WMS, you know, making sure we're, we're hitting on all those touch points. Um, how, how is operations interacting with the system um, in particular exceptions? And, and uh, if things don't go as planned, then there's, uh, there's a lot of value in the experience side of that. Um, and then um, where we kind of have to weigh uh, the longer term strategy, is this a, a stopgap? Is this a Band-Aid? Or is this the execution of the longer term strategy um, really drives home the need for a design? You know, are we being are we trying to get 100 percent of absolutely everything that operations needs and wants to deliver on their strategy, to deliver on their roadmap? If the answer is yes. You're going to spend a lot more time designing, a lot more time testing, perhaps, you know, uh, like on stand side, there's going to be certain solutions that aren't part of the base product that will require development and, and changes. And that's all something that's going to add to the delivery timeline. So, um, you know, are we good with an 80 percent that we can do quickly or do we need the 100 percent that will take uh, significantly longer? So I'd say really um, pinpointing what the need is and focusing on the design um, and then really, uh, really leveraging um, the best resourcing um, that you can effectively get, as well as, you know, like we were talking about earlier, investing in your own internal resourcing so that ultimately you can take ownership of this product. Stan? Yeah, and, you know, for us, typically the design lays out ultimately where they want to get to long term and you you back off of that in terms of phases in terms of what they you know they can implement within a given time frame and sometimes you know that's a difficult conversation because the client really wants to solve everything but they really don't have the capacity or the schedule to solve everything in the time that they need it so you have to prioritize what when and how you're implementing and go through phases and that's that's particularly relevant in you know the types of clients we discussed earlier at the beginning of this, which is retail, omni-channel, e-commerce, because they have pretty brutal peak seasons. You know, so so you work around that um, and get alignment on it with the client and the implementation team, and as well as the you know the vendor. So that's very very important for success. And I have a question based on something you had said earlier, Stan, you know, with, with the ERP systems that are out there where they might have a WMS module, is that typically a place most organizations start and try to do something? And it, it, or do you find that those are purpose built for the industry they're in, or are they just kind of a, a stopgap? There's definitely a point you reach where you outgrow them. And I'm not going to single out any ERP's data collection system, but fundamentally they tend to be passive solutions instead of directed operations within the warehouse and the distribution center. And what that means is your labor efficiency 
and your accuracy is really not as great as you would like it to be, um, there's a certain point at which they start to break down. Same thing happens with a best of breed WMS. There's a certain point at which clients want to implement automation and depending on which WMS platform you have, uh, its ability to easily do that without bringing in, you know, expensive middleware solutions to deploy that. So it's, it all kind of follows the evolution of the client's business growth and what they're trying to solve and, and when that hits them. So what do C-suites executives want to see here or experience to make a decision on a vendor, Stan? Usually where you've done it before in, in similar, similar industry or similar operational environments doesn't have to be exact, but they want to see specific testimonials and or reference sites and or customer experiences where you can show them, you know, what you've accomplished. And for just for us, pretty much base WMS solution, if they're coming from data collection or paper-based operation, um, is a, a minimum of a 20 to 30% productivity improvement and labor savings. That's the normal range right out of the box for us. But when you incorporate automation, which, you know, we support pretty much the gamut of every single ASRS goods to person solution, pick by light, put by light, voice, conveyance sortation, then you, that's when you explode and you get the 50 plus percent uh, improvement productivity improvement and that that varies based on the specific situation the industry what they're challenged with where they're at today and what automation you're deploying bill yeah no the um in our boat since you know naturally we don't have uh a product we're we're a bit more product agnostic um i would say testimonials and where we've done this successfully before, um, or even on the strategic side, if it's kind of a more strategic discussion, um, understanding kind of uh, what process changes we've seen that they could use. So not necessarily a, 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 uh, a proof that, you know, we've done this before, but more of a, um, this is where you could consider um, changing things or improving things to ultimately get at that, you know, 20, 30, 50% productivity growth. And then certainly if there's um, any additional technologies that maybe they haven't considered, um, you know, uh, certainly on the operational side and, and um, you know, some of the, the hardware side of things uh, involves a different group of people. But when you start talking about, you know, incorporating labor management systems that maybe uh, they hadn't considered before, something like that. That's um, that's where a lot of our focal point kind of or our our discussions start out. Right? Yeah, and that's a great call out for what a group like Phil's uh, company brings to the table because you know when we go through our system design process, we really focus on best practices in the use of our software. Um, but oftentimes some of the fixes have nothing to do with the system or the software. <laughs> it's right. just, they need operational guidance. I think, you know, Phil, you mentioned the experience of someone from one to 15 years. They, yeah. they need some people in there that have done this across many industries, many times over many years and mm -hmm. just kind of call out 
le less than best practices that they're currently utilizing, regardless of the system. And that's, I, I would reiterate what Phil said, that that combined with the right software solution pushes you even higher on, on the productivity and labor savings. Yep. So I have a final question for, for both of you, and I'll start with Phil. Um, how have you seen WMS solutions evolve in recent years? And what, you know, with all the emerging trends and challenges that are today, what are the things, the technologies that you'll see shape the future of WMS systems? Like what, what's going to really feed into that change and in, in the different changing needs of, of what customers will have? Yeah, I, I'd say, um, you know, I've, Admittedly, I've been in the industry for right around 15 years, so I've only seen a certain amount of change. Um, but even in that amount of time, I would say the adaptability, um, you know, notwithstanding, you know, tech stacks and changing from, you know, uh, kind of on-prem to cloud in a lot of cases, but the adaptability, you know, it used to be that kind of your traditional retail flow was very much a, you know, you walk into a warehouse and this, this portion of the warehouse is for this store and this portion of the warehouse is for this store. And it's kind of a very static um, architecture. And I think the product evolved out of that environment. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me, what we're seeing a lot more of in our implementations, especially with e-commerce and direct to consumer is um, being able to adapt the solution to not just a confined area of inputs, but now we've got this huge expanse of, you know, customer information, uh, trends, you know, forecasting uh, numbers. There, there's so much that can go into um, simple things as where do we pull inventory from, right? And, and uh, the, the ability, what seems like it's changed the most is how many inputs you can have and what you can do with those inputs. And I would say going forward, being able to, um, you know, they use AI and machine learning and those, those types of buzzwords, but not even to that level, but e being able to adapt even more on the fly to direct your resourcing to, uh, you know, uh, your your pickers and, and folks within the warehouse themselves who are using the WMS. Um, being able to adapt as real time as possible to uh, new and changing information, I would say, is the biggest change that I've noticed um, throughout our customers over the past 10 to 15 years. Excellent. Stan? Yeah, I'll uh, add on to the adaptability thing. I've got a couple other comments. I think that's a great call out. Um, and just if you look at business dynamics and what's changed, particularly in the retail, e-commerce, omni-channel space, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't run into a wholesale distributor or manufacturer that suddenly said, oh, geez, we can't ship pallets and cases anymore. Now we have to ship eaches too. And to Phil's point, uh, the integration point for that is a separate website. It's not just a basic integration to the ERP, or it could be multiple websites. So there's adaptability from the IT integration standpoint for WMS. 
um, as well as adaptability operationally. And I've run into many of the situations Phil's described as well. We've got this inventory dedicated over here to each picking in e-commerce. The rest of the facility is this, and it's problematic. Um, the other things that we're seeing is really a drive for more integrated labor management solution right in the WMS uh, and that the ability of that to adapt. And the thing that we've seen since our you know, inception has been just the growth in automation. But I would say the growth in automation and we're, we are regularly writing new drivers to new automation equipment. We've been doing that for a few decades. So we have standard drivers so we can adapt to new automation quite quickly. <clears throat> um, and the, along the adaptability line is, you know, people don't want the multi-year highly customized WMS. They want something that's highly configurable, but also modifiable. And part of that ties back to the ROI. What's your ROI if it takes you three to five years to implement a WMS versus, you know, six months or so? So that's a different flavor of the adaptability. So we're seeing that, we're seeing integrated LMS, um, we're seeing more than one integration point. Uh, all those things have kind of become really pretty common. So, and we've seen a lot of new WMS players on the market, mostly web-based kind of lightweight uh, SaaS model type. Uh, I run into a new one, I think once a month or so. And they tend to be, you know, very cost effective. You can get them up and running quickly, but the depth is is pretty shallow. So we're seeing that um, clients really want substantially more depth in the solution along all those lines I just mentioned. So excellent. Well, thank you both. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the MHI Industry Leadership Podcast. We hope you found the discussion with Phil Hallbaker and Stan McLean on making the business case for WMS to the C-suite insightful and informative. If you're interested in learning more about the MHI Solutions community, be sure to check out their webpage at mhi.org slash solutions community. The community provides a platform for industry experts to collaborate, share knowledge, and stay up to date on the latest trends and innovations shaping the supply chain and material handling industry. Thank you for tuning in to the MHI Industry Leadership Podcast, and we look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking discussions on the future of the industry. Thank you for joining the MHI Industry Leadership Podcast. Join us next time to learn more about the trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices that are moving the industry forward.